Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful, and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at @elucidationspod, and you can check out our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers. And I have to say, I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Sofia Zvolensky, Marie Curie Fellow at the Institute of Philosophy at the Slovak Academy of Sciences in Bratislava, and Professor of Philosophy at the Institute of Philosophy at Utvesh University in Budapest. And she is here to discuss fictional names. Sofia Zvolensky, welcome. Well, thank you, Matt. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Okay, so coming at this subject for the first time, you might wonder what is special about fictional names. So the name Matt refers to me, and the name Luke Skywalker refers to an imaginary character that George Lucas made up. Is there anything like sort of special about a fictional name that makes it different from the name of a real person? So in philosophy of language, proper names have gotten a lot of attention, given that they're special devices enabling us to talk about specific things in the world, whether that be people or towns or countries. It seems like these things that they pick out, the, the town, the person, are quite central to what these expressions like proper names mean and what they contribute to the sentences in which they are featured. Now, if you take reference to be so central, of course, we're going to have special issues coming up with names that don't refer to anything quite like the objects that proper names like Matt Teichman refers to or a proper name like Hungary refers to because there's no such thing as Luke Skywalker. There's no concrete object occupying space and time the way you and I occupy space and time and the where we can think of the proper names that pick us out as referring to these objects. And then you might have various uh, views about, well, do names like Luke Skywalker or Princess Leia pick out anything, or are they just names that are without reference? But in any case, if you have a paradigm for proper names where reference is a central aspect of theirs in accounting for the meanings of such expressions and the meaning contributions of such expressions to the sentences that feature them, then you're going to be facing a challenge. How are you going to bring fictional names under the umbrella of a view about proper names such that reference is such a fe uh, central feature there? So Princess Leia does not refer to any actual person because Princess Leia is a, an imaginary fictional character. 
why can't we just say the name Princess Leia refers to like the idea of Princess Leia or something like that? And that way we can keep this idea that every name, the meaning of every name is the thing it refers to. Matt Teichman refers to a person, but Princess Leia refers to an idea. Mm-hmm. Well, there is the issue of intersubjectivity that comes right up if you're thinking about the reference of any kind of expression as a mental entity. After all, when we're trying to account for the meanings of various expressions, one of our prime goals is to account for the possibility of communication, the possibility of getting thoughts across and getting thoughts understood. It's possible to do that with just mental entities as your units of meaning, but you're going to have to have a really complicated story there. And by contrast, giving a story where meanings are things that are public and can be shared among people will result in a way more way more elegant approach or so it has seemed. So interestingly, even for the point that I was making before that something like the reference of Princess Leia, you might think, okay, it doesn't refer that's an expression that doesn't refer to anything or you might think, well, it refers to something, it's just not a concrete object like tables and chairs and people. In this sort of discussion, the mental entity, say the idea as the reference of of a name like that, was not categorized as a form of um, commitment to a kind of object. That is Princess Leia. So ideas seem to be coming for free. And if you say, okay, there are realist views about fictional characters on the one hand, and irrealist views about fictional characters, where according to the realist views, there is uh, some sort of being for fictional characters, whereas for realist views, you deny that, then um, thinking in terms of mental entities as reference would not classify you as a realist. Instead, it would um, put you in the irrealist camp. So I think there is on the one hand this aspect that realism is committing you to something other than a mental entity as your reference. And one of the driving forces behind that is the desire to account for how it is that I get to talk about Princess Leah and you're able to understand what I'm saying where if it was just a mental entity and my private idea of Princess Leah to which I was referring and when you understand me, you take the term Princess Leia to refer to your mental idea of her, then of course these are things to which we don't get access. I don't have access to yours, you don't have access to mine. So then there is a very complicated story to be told about how communication is possible and how it is that even though some of the time communication misfires and I don't understand what somebody else is saying, I'm misunderstanding the person, a whole lot of the time it does actually work out pretty well. Yeah, interesting. So these questions we're asking about what an expression in a language refers to, you might think of as questions to do with what that bit of language is about. And it seems like we've just discussed a kind of trade-off here. So if you think that words like Matt or Shofia are about ideas, then that incurs a kind of cost. Then it makes it a little bit harder to explain how communication is possible because, as we all know, telepathy is not possible So then that gives us kind of more work to do because we had to explain how, when I say something, do I get the idea out of my head and kind of into your head? There doesn't seem to be any way to directly transmit thoughts or whatever. Whereas if we take a step back and instead of saying that names like Matt or Sophia are 
about ideas, but we say that they're just about the people. Well, the people are out and about in the world. They're not in any particular person's head. They're like public objects that we both can see and, and hear. Saying that the, the various linguistic expressions are about these publicly accessible things makes it a lot easier to tell a story about how I can communicate a message from me to you because it doesn't involve anything jumping out of my head into your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you might think, okay, so people and chairs out there and countries, they exist mind independently in one particular sense. You don't need for their continued existence. You don't need anyone to be thinking about these objects. And of course, it gets a little bit complicated with things like countries, because you might think, well, there couldn't be countries if there weren't minds about uh, people doing various activities. And I think that's an interesting thing to bear in mind when it comes to fictional characters, because one of the views that has been quite popular, advocated uh, since the 1970s by Saul Kripke, Peter Wenningwagen, for example, and quite a few other people, and more recently a prominent proponent of it has been Amy Thomason, is a view according to which fictional characters like Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker are human-created objects, artifacts. They aren't concrete artifacts like a painting you might see in a gallery, but they still, by being non-concrete objects, have this temporal dimension of people's activities bringing them about at a certain time. So George Lucas's and others' creative activities bringing about the character. I mean, this is something that is way easier to track with a fictional character that's not featured in a movie, but say in a novel or a short story. So if you take J.K. Rowling's creative activities, um, bringing into existence a character like Harry Potter, you get a better sense of, well, there is some sort of a temporal dimension there, because in the 1980s, before she had thought of this character, definitely Harry Potter wasn't one of the fictional characters um, in our public inventory of fictional characters, and by the 1990s, that definitely has changed. And you can relate that to one special person's activities, the author of the series of novels, whereas in the case of a movie or even in the case of a cartoon, you have a collective activity of of various people contributing to what, on this kind of view, according to which fictional characters are non-concrete artifacts, what the activities are and who the people are that contribute to the creation of the fictional character. Right, yeah. So you can get yourself really confused if you start to wonder, like, does Princess Leia exist? I mean, in one sense, of course, she doesn't exist because she's fictional. That's the whole definition of being fictional is that you're not real. She's not a real person. It's not like this is a historical biography or something when we're watching the movie. It's an imaginary creation. So she doesn't exist. But on the other hand... There also seems to be a difference between Princess Leia and then like some other hypothetical fictional character that nobody's ever written about. Like there is a sense in which she kind of exists, so to speak, more than some fictional character that nobody's ever written about or even thought of yet. So it seems like this theory that you're discussing, according to which fictional characters are these like human-made artifacts and fictional names refer to these human-made artifacts is to try to deal with that problem. You can say both that there's a difference between this imaginary character being an actual person and between 
it having, as it were, come into existence by the existence of the relevant book or movie Mm -hmm. um, versus the state of affairs before the book or movie came out. Yeah, so we can definitely talk about the preceding times and we can even hypothesize about situations like, well, if J.K. Rowling um, went into dentistry and never thought about novels and characters in them, there would be a host of fictional characters uh, that we, in fact, have as a social cultural constructions in our community who would not be around. So we can even hypothesize that. Now, what kinds of objects are these exactly? So let's say we say that Hermione Granger is a human-made creation. Well, I mean, I don't know. I can wrap my mind around what, like, a human-made television is. That's just a thing sitting in my living room. But, like, Hermione Granger is not a thing sitting in my living room. I don't know. It just seems a little bit weird to say that, like, she's an artifact, where it seems like the paradigm cases we have of artifacts are, like, physical things that we made. Well, uh, there are lots of things that are physical things we've made, but I mean, even for something like television or the light bulb, the patent for it is not for a specific physical object, and there are various features of the objects that are light bulbs in television sets that can change quite a bit over time, yet be covered by, for example, the television or the light bulb patent that was originally invented. So even in those cases, if we look at things more closely, that there is some sort of a a non-concrete object that an inventor has invented, of which there are the concrete incarnations that are sitting in our living rooms and in our light bulb sockets, if you think of the, um, the bulbs, or concrete instances. But um, more broadly, humans have created all sorts of objects that are not concrete. So even just to stick with artworks, I have mentioned a painting that is a concrete object that somebody like uh, Degas might create. But um, think about a symphony or an opera that a composer uh, has created. Of course, there are play, there are various performances of it. Just as for novels, there are the various copies of it, concrete objects that you can purchase in a store, or there might be specific instances of reciting a play or, or a reading of a novel or a short story. But at the same time, what we attribute to the author is not any of those concrete things, whether those be objects or events, but having written the symphony, which is a non-concrete object. So on this view, according to which... Uh, Fictional characters are human-created objects that are not concrete, would be one where these objects would be likened to a host of other social and cultural constructions that humans have created, things like symphonies and novels, even um, social institutions like uh, um, the Office of Prime Minister or the Game of Chess, the Institution of Marriage, Amy Thomason was forcefully arguing, for example, that especially in her book, Fiction and Metaphysics from 1990, that the metaphysical costs that are incurred by a position like fictional artifactualism, this view according to which fictional characters are non-concrete human-created objects, is not nearly as significant if we realize that there is a broad spectrum of objects that we want to be putting in that sort of category already, quite independently of fictional characters. And we can then just extend that category that includes marriages and the game of soccer and symphonies and novels to fictional characters. 
Another example that jumped to mind here was maybe something like an algorithm. So, you know, I have a really long list of things in my computer and I want to be able to sort it efficiently. And they're all different procedures, different programs you could write to try to sort the list of things in my computer. And for some of these giant lists, it's really challenging to come up with an efficient way to sort them. That's why some people get paid the big bucks to come up with like really clever algorithms for that. But it's not like you can just point to the algorithm like, oh, here's the algorithm sitting here in my living room. It actually somebody had to come up with that. Yeah, that maybe would seem to be another case of one of these things that really kind of gets to count as a human creation, even though it's not physical, you know, located in a place. Yeah, and I mean, the tricky bit is that in this literature, these objects that are non-concrete are often referred to as abstract. And one thing to keep in mind is that by abstract, most of these philosophers just mean that it's a non-concrete object. It might have temporal, maybe even spatial dimensions, but not in the way that concrete objects have them. I mean, you might even wonder if it's something like a, a case of marriage. So if I got married, what's the spatial location of my marriage? Does it have one? It's sort of unclear. Like if I say, take a trip to another continent or take a trip to the moon, does the marriage um, move with me? <laughs> Especially if I do it with the other person concerned or if I do it on my own, what happens uh, if we're continents or, or galaxies apart? Is the marriage in two places at the same time? I mean, these are just really odd questions to be asking, which just makes Exactly in the middle between the two of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so <laughs> yeah, the midpoint between the two. I mean, you, you start asking these questions and you get really bizarre alternatives, even for the mundane case where the two people married are both at the same place at the given time. So that makes you realize and appreciate that whatever spatial and temporal dimensions these kinds of objects might have, they're certainly not going to be anything like the kinds of spatial-temporal dimensions that concrete objects have. Yet, it seems that... Um, that um, accounting for things like laws, like say the Bill of Rights or or the institution of prime minister or or a symphony or a novel would naturally um, take you in a direction of positing these as some sort of entity rather than saying, well, it's just let's just be realists about these objects and not think that there's any sense in which they have existence or being. It's already a puzzling fundamental question. Well, what kind of a thing could a non-concrete object be that is at the same time human-created? And it sounds even more puzzling when you ask this question, what kind of object could an abstract object be that is human-created? I mean, for abstract objects, we have this model of them being numbers, if you believe in such things. And uh, numbers, we think, exist mind independently in a very strong sense. So even if uh, even if there were no minds to think about numbers and the world had pebbles and nothing else, uh, numbers, it would seem, would exist still. So how on earth, if that's our reference point for an abstract object or a platonic form, how on earth should we conceive of an abstract object that humans create? I think it's a little bit less puzzling, maybe considerably less puzzling, to realize that by abstract we mean a non-concrete object, uh, one whose spatial-temporal dimensions, even if it has them, are markedly different from that of concrete objects. But it is a big basic question. But what I'm saying is that for fictional characters, um, 
I agree with Amy Thomason, who suggests that, look, this is a category of objects that we quite independently need to make room for in our theory, accounting for the world, given the various social, cultural constructions. And we get that category for free for fictional characters. You've been especially interested in what people call the causal theory of reference, which you might paraphrase as follows. What a proper name stands for is the object that was um, originally baptized with the name at some point or other in history. So what determines the fact of the matter about what the name Matt Teichman refers to? Well, it's just the fact that this person sitting here is the person who was, in fact, happened to be sitting in St. Mary's Hospital in 1980, was pointed at and christened with the name Matt. That's just what it is for the name Matt to refer to me, this person. So this is a very influential theory, and it's been widely discussed. And you've been interested in looking for ways to sort of apply this theory about kind of ordinary names to fictional names. Now, how exactly is that story going to go? Indeed, in various papers in which I was uh, defending the fictional artifactual disposition, one of the lines I was taking was that if you're independently sympathetic to a general view about proper name reference like Kripke's, there are additional arguments for fictional artifactualism and strategies for fending off various criticisms of fictional artifactualism. Philosophers have, for example, suggested somebody like Stuart Brock and Takashi Yagisawa that uh, although it seems there is some kind of uh, intuitive appeal to thinking of fictional characters as created objects, this creation aspect may be causing more trouble than what it solves because it is quite mysterious how it is that we could think about creation and the object that has been created. So there is, um, there is that kind of challenge, for example, to fictional artifactualism. Recently, I've also been uh, thinking about cases that might seem even more mysterious than an author like J.K. Rowling creating a character like Hermione Granger that's a non-concrete object. Cases of inadvertent creation. So you might think, well, you know, we can inadvertently create various things. I mean... Whenever things uh, go awry in our lives, we might inadvertently um, uh, create a dish that we didn't have in mind or a person that we didn't have in mind. But what about an author setting out to write about fictional characters in a certain world that she's creating, say, the, the world of the Harry Potter novels? You might think the intentions of the authors are quite definitive. How on earth is it that something can be created that wasn't part of the author's intention? I've even been arguing that, well, inadvertent creation is something that a fictional artifactualist can readily account for, and that's a welcome result because um, there are various kinds of cases in which the best thing to say is that, well, the author has been in error about the world around him, and as a result, he was thinking all along that he is describing a historical figure, um, just as, say, Tolstoy, in writing War and Peace, was writing about Napoleon, the historical figure, and various fictional characters, some of whom actually met Napoleon. But if the author is in error about the historical characters in reality, 
then it could be that he inadvertently creates a fictional character. So I had, it was a counterfactual example because something about imagining a scenario that isn't um, what happened actually to describe this sort of case. But I'm sure there are a bunch of cases in which uh, authors can be in error. Just some of the examples that I found are somewhat imperfect. So for example, Shakespeare in Winter's Tale writes about a journey to Bohemia, which is a desert land near the sea. And of course, Bohemia is part of the Czech Republic, and it's entirely landlocked, and there are no deserts there. So you wonder, was uh, Shakespeare writing about this part of the Czech Republic, or was writing about some fictional land that just shares a name with an actual area? But um, I think we get much better examples if we imagine a contrary-to-fact scenario in which Tolstoy sets out to write about some historical figures like Napoleon, and he mistakenly thinks that Andrei Bolkonsky, one of these um, protagonists in his novel, is a contemporary of Napoleon, another historical figure, and he does introduce various fictional characters, Natasha Rostova and a host of others, but he thinks Bolkonsky is like Moscow in his novel and like Napoleon in his novel, and he's wrong about that. The best thing to say in that scenario is that uh, Prince Bolkonsky is a non-concrete artifact, one that Tolstoy has inadvertently created, and I've also given various arguments for thinking that well, our best candidate for a non-concrete artifact for Prince Volkonsky is to think that that's a fictional character. I mean, imagine a situation in which uh, Tolstoy's novel takes off, as it actually did, acquires a lot of influence even during his lifetime, and a couple of years down the line, historians realize that Tolstoy has been operating under this misconception that when Prince Bolkonsky was a historical contemporary of Napoleon's, if we confronted in the wake of the novel's success Tolstoy with this fact and said, look, you've got this really great successful novel, but actually there was no such person as Prince Bolkonsky, you just made that up just as Natasha Rostova and a host of other characters. I think it's plausible to think that he would then reflect and say, well, yeah, I guess I did create an extra fictional character, and it was none of my intention to do so. I inadvertently created that object. So I think inadvertent creation is something that, at first glance, especially if you're worried about creation of fictional characters to begin with, might seem like a really baffling thing to posit in the case of fictional characters. Yet what I was arguing in several papers was that if you accept the causal historical chain theory for the reference of proper names that Kripke was proposing in his 1970 Naming and Necessity lectures and later, then you have a very good way of accounting for inadvertent creation and making room for that and making that an acceptable feature of being a fictional artifactualist. I mean, one of the reasons... um, We can so easily do that is because this um, picture of reference that uh, Kripke is proposing about there being a chain of uses leading back to the original introduction of the name for an object to the baptism of that object is that he thinks an alternative theory according to which descriptions that individual speakers associate with the proper names they use determine the reference of the names is one that doesn't work. 
it's a theory that has serious problems, and one of those problems is that speakers can be in error, and sometimes even quite extensive errors. So he gives examples like many people being quite a bit in the wrong about Einstein's achievements and might associate the description with their uses of the name Einstein, or that's the guy who invented the atomic bomb, which is totally off. It's entirely unclear that there was any single person who did that, and even if by some charitable way we could pin that description on a person, that would not be Einstein. Yet it seems that um, speakers can successfully refer with the name Einstein and refer to the same person everybody else is uh, referring to in their linguistic community, despite the fact that they're in error about what Einstein has done and what his achievements are, an error in the descriptions that they associate with the proper name. So it's precisely this kind of error and also ignorance on the part of individual speakers that Kripke takes in the second lecture of Naming and Necessity to be a key reason for holding the causal historical chain theory of what determines the reference of a proper name. So you can have a rather ignorant speaker as long as she is embedded in a linguistic community in which there is a chain of uses for the proper name going back to the baby Albert Einstein being called Einstein in her mouth to the name refers to whoever is at the opposite end of the causal historical chain. So one of these arguments that I was giving is that, well, in the case of inadvertent creation, the considerations about error come into the picture in unexpected ways, even in the case of authors who are at the very origin of the proper names. So they are not end-of-the-line users who might be quite ignorant or or know quite little, as in the case of these speakers uh, using the term Einstein, but even originators of proper names can be involved in error, and that can very smoothly account for a case of inadvertent creation, even though it seems like a baffling phenomenon to have to posit. Right, okay. So according to uh, Saul Kripke's causal theory, what determines that the name Matt refers to me is that this is the person who some parents christened Matt at a certain time. And your idea is that, well, one of the perks of thinking of fictional characters as these sort of like human-created, non-concrete artifacts is that we can then have a similar story about what it is that determines what a fictional name refers to. Namely, we can take the name Harry Potter and say that that name refers to the non-concrete artifact that J.K. Rowling created in the late 90s and christened with that name, with the same kind of story we told about Matt. And then a further perk that comes with being able to have the same kind of story about what determines what a normal name stands for and what determines what a fictional name stands for is that it makes these cases where authors who are writing historical fiction mess up the facts and accidentally kind of make stuff up, even though they think that they're talking about the historical facts. It makes those cases less mysterious. Yeah, so so the way that you can um, see better what the perks of a fictional artifactualist position are is if you compare the position to alternative accounts. And what I've done is uh, consider various realist alternatives to fictional artifactualism and uh, 
One of them is due to Alexius Meinung and has contemporary proponents. According to this view, fictional characters are objects of thought, yet they are supposed to be, to refer back to our previous discussion, not simply objects in individual speakers' mind, but in a way, public property, something that both you and I can have as an object of our thought. And you might also think of fictional characters as inhabitants of um, scenarios that don't obtain what we might call possible worlds that are different from the actual ones. In fact, Kripke in the 1960s um, considered the view and seemed sympathetic to it that even though Sherlock Holmes doesn't actually exist, there is a possible world in which he does. And that's a view with which he breaks at the end of Naming and Necessity, and that's something that, that he discusses at greater length in um, the Reference and Existence lectures. The perk, I think, that we can find is that um, the causal historical chain about what determines the reference of a proper name is something that you might think is not not in any way straightforwardly extendable to a case of reference to a non-concrete object. The discussion in Naming and Necessity leaves largely implicit that we're talking about concrete objects. But if you really think about it, the names are always for concrete people and uh, the natural kind terms for for concrete kinds. And it's only in the, the addenda to naming a necessity in three pages that Kripke addresses briefly the issue of uh, reference for expressions like unicorn and expressions like Sherlock Holmes. You might then think, well, a causal connection is something that you have to a um, concrete object. I mean, how is it that we could possibly have a causal connection for a non-concrete object? And this is especially striking if you take as your paradigm of a non-concrete object an object like a number. I mean, we don't seem to have um, causal connections to numbers, not in an ordinary sense even if we think that they exist as these abstract entities, right? So naming a necessity, 98% of it is about reference to concrete objects for which we get a nice round story about a causal historical chain going back to the introduction of the name. Um, One thing that you might say is that, well, in the case of numbers, there is still a causal chain leading back to the introduction of the proper name, It's just that the causal chain goes back to the introduction, and it's not as though we're looking for causal connection at the introduction between the introducer and the object for which the name is introduced. So you might think that, okay, so somebody introduces a name like pi for a number. And then there is a causal historical chain of uses leading to your use of pi later on. All that the causal historical chain is about is just the chain leading back to the introduction, but no causal contact to an object like the number pi is required there. So that might be one neutralizing strategy for generalizing the idea of a causal historical chain to cases in which a non-concrete object has been named. It's a possible way to do that. And As far as I can understand, one of the reasons why people have switched to talking about historical chains or causal historical chains, bringing in the issue about history, was to try to accommodate that kind of generalization. We certainly see that in John Burgess's work. 
One thing that seems clear is that Kripke takes his views about reference in some way to naturally extend to cases in which the object is a non-concrete object, the object for which the name has been introduced. Sofia Zwolenski, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at @lucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.